0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we're continuing our study of the book of Galatians. We're calling Legalism to Liberty. With this week's message, here's senior pastor Lance Bourgeois.
1: Maybe you heard this past week, Bill and Melinda Gates have announced that they're ending their 27-year marriage. What's interesting is in the midst of their own personal struggle and pain over what they're walking through, the rest of the world is talking about it from a completely different angle, maybe even insensitive, because what the world is talking about is how many dollars are at stake. Everybody wants to know what this divorce settlement's going to cost. Forbes is saying that it may be the biggest divorce settlement ever, which would be eclipsing what had been the previous largest with Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Mackenzie Scott that eclipsed the $35 billion breakup. Now, the thing that's interesting is I think why most people care isn't so much because they care about the state of marriage. It's not because they care about Bill and Melinda Gates. There's other things. One, we want to gawk at the numbers. But two, there's something called the Gates Foundation. Maybe you're familiar with it. It is the world's largest philanthropy. And in it, it is a fifty billion dollar nonprofit. In 2019 alone, they gave 5.1 billion with a B dollars to fight poverty, disease, and inequity around the world. Get that 5.1 billion. And the question is, how is that divorce? Between Bill and Melinda Gates, this couple who lives together, who's been married for 27 years, they're separated, and the question is, how will their divorce impact the world? Because a lot of people are scared. What's going to happen? And the question that hits all of us is this, right? How is it possible that one couple living up, I assume, in the Washington state area, how is it that one couple's divorce could touch the entire world? Well, when you have that much influence, it could happen. One marriage creating all of this. And I think if we're really honest, we want to think we have impact. We want to think that we're world changers. Think with me, this is how it comes out. We think whatever good qualities or traits we may have, and we think, well, I spend time with this person, maybe it's a partner, a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a grandparent, and uncle, co-worker, it doesn't matter. And we think, I'm going to rub off on them. And when I rub off on them, then they're going to go into their sphere of life, and they will make a positive impact. And we'll look at it and say, I was a part of that. Now, there's truth in that. It's almost like taking that rock and throwing it into the lake, and you see all that ripple effect taking over. When it comes to our positive positive traits, I do think we probably work from this angle. We want to maximize our possible impact. I touch the world. I think about some of our Air Force friends that come here, and we get to minister to them and love on them as a community, and then they go all over the world, and there's a part where we can think, hey, we played a part in that. You know where it gets minimized? It gets minimized in our negative traits, doesn't it? We want our positive traits maximized, and and our negative traits we want to minimize, well, yeah, that's just kind of the downside of me. It is what it is. And we just kind of leave it alone, as if our negative impact doesn't have the same impact that our positive, our positive traits do. See, it all spreads out. And you know where it happens. It happens so often when maybe you and I think, I never thought I'd say it that way because I didn't like it when my parents or grandparents or aunts, uncles, cousins, coaches, teachers, whatever, I didn't like it when they said it. And then you say something and you think, oh, I know where that came from. And in that moment, all of a sudden, you recognize the negative impact that maybe somebody else had in your life. We want to minimize the negatives. We want to maximize the positives. You know the really scary one? The really scary is the impact we're having on other people when we don't even know it. When we're having that negative impact with whatever baggage, whatever we carry, and we start rubbing off on those people around us, and all of a sudden, how unfair that our negative things we're not even aware of are rubbing off and having a negative impact on others, people that we love. Well, that's what Paul's writing about today. I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Galatians chapter 4. As you, if we read this, Paul is confronting this impact. It could have been positive. It's not. It is negative, and it may be an unaware negative, or it might be a fully known negative. But that's what he's writing about because there's two groups of people that he's going to be addressing in this. one are this, this Galatian church, people who have come to faith and they've come to understand the gospel for who it is, what it is, and the clear, simple truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a second group that are in this too. We've, you've heard us talk about it. If you've been with us in this series, they're called the Judaizers. They're the people who are trying to enforce a rigid adherence to Jewish law. And so they're taking this and they're saying, just living out the gospel isn't sufficient. You need to follow all of the Mosaic law. And so they're adding back into it. I think Paul's words as we start this today are going to be this idea. You're having a negative impact. Whether you're aware of the negative impact or you're unaware of it, we've got to confront what's going on. Because much like that rock being thrown in the lake that's going to have that ripple effect, it's going to happen in your church. The moment you step away from the simple, clear gospel, it's going to start having impact. It's going to have impact in your life, it's going to have impact in your home, in your place of work, in your community, which is why Paul says we've got to deal with this and we've got to confront it for what it is. So we pick up our story from where we left off last week, where he was very clear on the gospel and he's very clear that these people know the gospel, but they've gotten confused and that's what he's going to do. So as we read through this, you're going to see that he makes three pleas He's appealing to them to return to the gospel on three different bases. Here's the first one. It's based on the gospel. We pick up in chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes this Formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Do you hear his despair? This is not a happy Paul. This is not a Paul that's content at all. He is upset. If you were with us last week, He walked them through the gospel and all that the gospel held for them. That it was the gospel message that brought justification, where their salvation came from. And because of that, they were baptized into Christ and they've been put in union with him. They can never, ever be separated from him. And then he said, because of that, you become unified with the body of believers. Nobody has any more worth or value than anybody else. You are all unified with one another. There's no more competition between you and anybody. And because all that's true... All of a sudden, you've been adopted into the family of God. And we talked about what that eternal family looks like. But that's not how he characterizes them here. Formerly, when you didn't know God, when you were over here and you didn't know Christ, before you understood the good news and the beauty of the gospel, you were over here and you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You called them gods, but they weren't gods. They just had that label attached to them. And you were enslaved to them. It comes back around and says, we've got to confront this. Think with me about that system. When he uses that word, you were enslaved to him. It's based on fear. It's based on competition. It's based on the never-ending quest to prove yourself. Think with me about if you had a person that just seemed like you could not please them. You're always working harder. You're always doing more. You're always trying to impress. You're doing things. We're like, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see what I just did? And we're trying to earn that. said, that's what this system was like. You were trying to earn something. What were the gods? What are they talking about? Well, you may have figured this out. We see this in Acts chapter 14. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was a chief speaker. He picked out two of the Greek gods, and they didn't even know about the Greek gods other than they worshiped them, but they don't know anything about them. So they see Paul, and they see uh, Barnabas, and they're like, this has to be them. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They're worshiping gods they don't even know about. But when all of a sudden somebody shows up and has power and influence and a good message, they look at him and say, well, they got to be gods. So the messenger, well, that's got to be Hermes. So we'll call Paul Hermes. Barnabas, we'll call Zeus. And all of a sudden, we've broken down the system and to manageable gods. The priest of Zeus doesn't even know Zeus, obviously, because he is not by nature a god. He's a made-up label. But they're like, well, let's offer sacrifices to this guy. That's clearly got to be Zeus. And everything goes wrong. Now, I would ask you to consider with me when we think about the Greek gods, you and I from our advanced standing can look back and be like, oh, that is foolish, right? I mean, how in the world do you come up and make up names and just decide that there's all these gods? Well, let's begin with the idea that what we could begin with was what Blaise Pascal said, if you're familiar with that name. This is where this phrase comes from. You may have heard about having a God-shaped hole. The phrase actually is vacuum. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. So that's where that quote comes from. And what happens to you and me and everybody else is that God-shaped vacuum is there, and we start trying to fill it. I think Paul, what he finds so ludicrous is they've already filled that vacuum, and they put God there, and now they're trying to to cram other things into that shape that was made for God. The words of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, is that we were made for eternity. I think this is what Paul's talking about, that we think deeper about things. And we may look and say, how stupid to think about Zeus and Hermes and some of these other systems. You know what we do? Our gods look different. They're still lowercase g-gods who by nature are not gods, but they are different. You know what we do? We do things like this. It's about my performance. I better perform well. I better come through for people. I better be the smartest person in the room. I remember at one point having a friend say, anytime we are the smartest people in the room, we're in the wrong room because it will be the death of our own growth and development if we can't be around somebody smarter than us. We've got to be in rooms with smart people. Our performance, I will come through for you at all times. That's one of our lower G gods. How about another one? How about network? We want to have a network. We want to be connected. We want to be known. We want to know people. We want to connect people. We want to be a matchmaker. We want to take whatever's out there. You've got a problem. I've got a buddy that's got the solution. My job is to connect them together, and then this guy thinks I'm the hero. This guy thinks I'm the hero, and I win the day. See, that's a lower G God. Another one, how about our resume? Do you know people that always want to tell you about all of their accomplishments? Well, I did this and then I earned this and then I did this and then I got experience doing this and my grade point average was this and then I did this and I had this internship and I did this. And we just always give the resume. And it's a never ending quest to try to earn the approval of another person. And what we know is this it doesn't work, does it? For the people who cannot be pleased, no resume ever wins the day. And we're always trying to do it. How about our portfolio? Maybe it's our portfolio of whatever possessions we have. Maybe it's a portfolio that I want to have the best clothes, I want to have the best address, I want to have the best car, I want to have the best. It doesn't matter. I just got my portfolio. And why does that work? Because I may not be the best, but as long as I'm better than somebody, then I'm okay, because I beat at least one person. And then lastly, maybe you say, I don't perform well. I've got no network. I've got no resume. I've got no portfolio to speak of. But you know what I have? I have my personality. I'm funny. People like me. I'm good. I'm a good guy. People think I'm a good guy. People enjoy me. See, we all have lowercase g gods. We don't call them Zeus or Hermes. We call them other things. But this group of people that had come to faith find themselves going into a different situation. And you know what? We're no different. Because if you know Christ, then you can come in here and say, I know Christ, that God-shaped vacuum, I have answered that question. But then you know what happens? We drift a little bit in our relationship with Christ, and what happened? All of a sudden, whatever thing we used to trust, that performance, that network, that resume, that portfolio, our personality, begins to creep back in. And we're like, it's Christ filling that that God-shaped vacuum plus. Let me just add a few of these things to it. And we get into trouble every single time. You know, the marvelous truth about the gospel, one of them, I can't narrow it down to one, I love this quote from Donald Guthrie. He's British, so that's why center is spelled this way. To recognize oneself to be the center of divine attention is one of the profounder aspects of Christian conversion. Does that register with you? To be the center of divine attention See, every other religion in the world is about our quest to die tired because we are spent in our attempts to reconcile a relationship with God because we recognize we're lost. Christianity has us, his creatures, his image bearers made in his image at the center of his thought process to the point that he wants to redeem a relationship with us. And he knows the way to do that is to send his son, God in the Son, down to this earth to humble himself, to take on flesh, to go to the cross, to pay a penalty that wasn't his, to die a death that was our death to die, and walk out of the grave on day three so he could have a relationship with us. You want to know how much God loves you? You are at the center of his divine attention. His focus is on you and me, and that's how much he loves us. And I think that's why Paul would look and say, you want to go back? You want to go back to this system that is broken? I think Paul would say, you know what? Following that Jewish law didn't get me justified, baptized, united, or adopted, and it's not going to get you there either. It doesn't work that way. He looks up and he says, but there was a change. Did you see the change in verse 9? You've come to know God. That's from our perspective upward. And then he gives the second part of the phrase, or be known by God. That's God's perspective down. We came to know him. He came to know us. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Everything changed. You don't even know your gods. You thought Barnabas and Paul were Zeus and Hermes. You don't even know your gods, and your gods certainly don't know you because they're not God's. There's some false name that you've created. When it says no, it talks about this intimate knowledge on a personal level. You have a personal relationship. It's why last week the passage was the invitation to call him Abba Father. He's not a master, he's your father. And we get invited into that relationship, which is why we can come to something like this. And this is a passage that Nolan used, used as we were preparing to take the elements. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the invitation from God the Father. You want to talk about writing a blank check? The blank check is for the whole world to taste and see that the Lord is good because the Lord knows that when you taste and see that he is good, you will be filled. That's the invitation. And if you're here today and you know him, you've already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That vacuum, that God-shaped vacuum that's there, God is already filled. But we would be remiss if we didn't go back and look at what are the other things we still try to cram in there. And if you're here today and you don't know him and you're like, I don't know him yet, life's hard, I'm struggling, I'm here to see, I'm actually here to take a taste of the Lord. Maybe I tasted Him when I was younger, maybe I've never had a taste of who He is. We're thrilled that you're here because we want to offer you Christ so that you can taste and see who He is. Because when we taste and when we see who He is, we're drawn to Him, which is why Paul comes back and he says, we're turn- you're turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles. You worshiped pagan gods. They did not justify you. They did not baptize you. They did not unite you. They did not adopt you. You were there. You were there in this pagan world. Then you came to faith. And all four of those things happened. And all four of those things answered your biggest question in life. It brought you your eternal family. And now I would say, now you want to add in the slavery to the law It doesn't take you back to the pagan gods, but it's going to be as effective in your life as the pagan gods were. It can't do those things for you. So let's keep the gospel clear and simple. He goes on to say, you've observed days and months and seasons and years. Yeah, they're practicing the law. Okay, Sabbath, do the festivals, practice the year of jubilee, celebrate and rejoice it, do all of those things. If they draw your heart to the Lord, If they evoke worship in you, and only you and I can answer that, but the moment we say, well, God's going to be really proud of me. He's really happy. I I observed 52 of 52 Sabbaths this year. God's not impressed. That's not what our Christian life is to be about. He changed the system. Those are merit badges, but we have no merit badges before the Lord. See, these pagan gods were plagued with the reality of human minds. Think with me, you may have asked this question when you were a kid, or if you're a child, maybe you're asking the question today. Question being this, if I was a superhero or I could have a superpower, which superpower would I wanna have? See, this whole Greek God thing was almost like this. If I could be a Greek God, which absolute power do I wanna have? And then they created a whole system around it, right? Let me give you an example. This isn't all of them. Matter of fact, it was funny. I came across a list, and the person said, "I'm still adding to it." There's an endless number of great gods, which is amazing to me. But you may, I, I grabbed some of the ones that maybe would be helpful. If humanity is creating gods, this is what humanity does. Are you ready? Apollo, the god of music, poetry, art, oracles, archery. How archery fits in there, I don't know. Plague, how plague and music go together, I don't get it. Medicine, sun, light, and knowledge, all right? That's a great one. Aries, the god of war, all right? Atlas, a primordial titan of astronomy, condemned by Zeus. I did not know this. Condemned by Zeus to carry the world on his back after the titans lost the war. You want to know what kind of gods humans create? We create the kind of gods that when you fail, the God makes you carry your failure of shame with you everywhere you go. That's who we create. Instead, we have a one most high God that says, I love you, I redeem you, I forgive you, I've removed that sin from you as far as the east is from the west, I've dropped it in the bottom of the sea and you've been set free from your failure. See, we can't even create good gods. We create gods like this. Let's go on. Chaos, the gap between heaven and earth, that's where we live, right? Chaos. How about the god Eurus? That's the god known as the unlucky east wind. They can't even picture a god that's big enough to be the east wind and the west wind. We just narrowed it down to the unlucky east wind. Hades, the god of the dead. Helios, the god of the sun. Hercules, that's the one we know about. The god of heroes, sports, athletes, health, agricultural trade, oracles, and the divine protector. Hypnos. Hypnos the god of sleep, because they can't even go to sleep without having a god that they make up. Morpheus, the god of dreams. Poseidon, the god of the sea, earthquake, storms, and horses. I don't know why horses got thrown in there. Zeus, king of the gods, and the father of the gods and men. Now, I would put before you, you create a system like that, plagued by humanity, with all of our faults, with not very much good in it, that you live in divine fear of and you try to please forever, here's the deal. They cannot even fathom a God big enough to be over all of this who is good and benevolent and forgiving and restores and reconciles. Which is why Paul looks at them and is like, I'm at a loss. Why would you want a system like this when you've been granted a system on the cross that justifies, baptizes, unifies, and adopts you into the very family of God? this is broken. How does Paul respond? Well, look at verse 11. You see it? Verse 11, when all of a sudden he comes back and he is defeated. I'm afraid I've labored in vain. I've walked you down this path. I've got you all the way here, and you want to turn back to a different system? You went from pagan worship to worship of the one true most high God, and now you want to be enslaved to the law? I, I don't even know how to process that with you. That's the first plea. On the basis of the gospel, come home. Look at the second one. Here's the second one. This is based on their relationship. Chapter 4, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, is Christ Jesus. What then, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Paul makes his second play on the basis of his relationship. Do you call that follow that? He begins with their history. Become like I did. you got to understand, Galatian church, I began with the law, and it didn't do any of those things for me. It didn't, it didn't justify me, baptize me, unite me, or adopt me. I tried. I lived there, but I came as you did and you want to go back to where I came from? It's not going to get you what you want. It doesn't work that way. Paul knew the shortcomings of the law. Now, I'm going to take you back in time. When I was a kid sitting in math class, and I loved math, but I was practical. And if you could have a calculator, I didn't understand why I needed to know long division. No desire to learn long division, but I had to. And every teacher said the same thing. You need to learn long division so you know how to work because one day you won't have a calculator with you everywhere you go. Oh, yeah? Everywhere we go. I think Paul is looking at them and saying, you Galatians, you started with the calculator and you're now trying to go back and you want to go back to learn long division? You don't need to learn the long division. You had the calculator. You were born in such a day that you began with the grace of God. Because the law pointed to that, that we needed it. You began with it. Let's not go backwards. You don't need to do that. And all of a sudden, they start moving forward in this. And he says, matter of fact, when I came to you, I had this bodily ailment. Now, we'll be real honest. We don't know what his ailment was. Some people think it was malaria. A lot of people think it's his eyes, is that he had failing eyesight. Elsewhere, Paul writes that, see, I, Paul, write this with my own hand in big letters, is that we think that maybe it was his eyes. That certainly fits because he said, if I needed to, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. Maybe it's a figure of speech, maybe it's he had an eye issue, which is where I tend to come down on that. But do you see that when he comes to them sick, in that system of all of those polytheistic gods, if you're sick and have a body ailment, then the belief is, is that you're under divine wrath from one of your gods. God has taken that away from you as punishment. So coming out of their system, you should have been afraid of me. You should have distanced yourself from me. But you didn't. You didn't distance yourself from me. Matter of fact, I came with such good news that when you heard me, you thought I was a divine messenger, maybe even Jesus Christ himself. Because the news of the gospel was so good to you, it tasted so sweet to you, you were convinced I had to be a divine messenger. And then he turned around and said, matter of fact, you would have given me your eyes. I got to tell you, when my daughter ter- was hitting you know, teenage years, Ellen and I gave her a ring, and we went to the store and picked out this ring, and it had a cross on it. And right on the crossbar of the cross, there was a heart. And so as we began talking with her, and we're thinking, okay, we're hitting teenager years, and so that's boys and all that's going to come with that, that Ellen and I sat down and decided to have a conversation with her. And I explained the ring, that the heart at the crossbars of the cross was a message of this, that love always has two characteristics. Two characteristics, always. Sacrifice and selflessness. Always, always, always. And so as you start thinking about guys, and if you start talking to guys and all that's going to go with that, the conversation I had was this, is that if a boy tells you he loves you, but his model behavior is not defined by selflessness and sacrifice, then it may be something, but it definitely isn't love. Because the cross is the ultimate portrait of selflessness and sacrifice. And I would ask you to consider the love that the Galatians had for Paul, that they loved him so much. It wasn't just that they thought he was an okay guy. It wasn't just that they thought he was a messenger that had a good news. They loved him. Selfless. I don't need my eyes here. You have them. Sacrifice. I'll live without them in order for you to have them, Paul. What was their relationship you can't say it's anything other than an incredible love for one another. And all of a sudden, we have this playing itself out, which brings Paul to their present in verse 16. How did I become the problem? How did I become the problem? I love you. You offered me your eyes. You knew I loved you, and you clearly loved me, but all of a sudden, I'm the problem. Remember? You wanted to give me your eyes and everything began to change. I think that in the words that Jesus said in John chapter 8, we find ourselves in a position where Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciple. And catch this, you, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Paul showed up and gave them a message, and he set them free from this pagan polytheistic religion. Now they've added other stuff to it. Paul is bringing them truth again to set them free. I think that this is a true statement is that truth equals freedom. Therefore, any degree of less than truth equals the degree of enslavement to something. Have a little bit of falsehood in your gospel, you have a little bit of enslavement, and it just takes over from there. Paul's saying, what more could I do than to offer you the gospel? I gave you the truth of the gospel, and that brought you freedom, and I'm your enemy? You're enslaved to this system What they're selling you is bringing slavery back into your life. I'm offering the truth because he goes on to say, I get it. It's good to have people make much of you. We want to make much of you. Paul says, I want to make much of you. The Galatians want to make much of you. You know the difference? The Galatians want to make much of you so they can use you to prop up their false system. Paul says, I make much of you because you're made in the image of God and Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And I, don't, I only make much of you because God made much of you, and all I'm doing is telling you how much God made of you. I don't have to manufacture that. But see, they're using you for their own purpose. I think Paul would say, you know, there's a better question, not who makes much of you. I think Paul would say, the real question would be, this. who makes much of you for their own selfish purposes versus who makes much of you for God's redeeming purposes? And see, everything changes at that point. Paul gains nothing personally for them walking in the grace, gospel of grace. That's it. Imagine this. Imagine if when my children were young, if they don't understand the currency system of our country yet, and I've got five brand new coins and they're shiny. And then I have a $100 bill that's this green folded piece of paper. And I go to my children and say, all right, I'll let you choose. Which one do you want? You want the five shiny coins, which at most could be $1.25, unless somebody's out there like, no, oh, there's a half dollar or a dollar. Don't be that person. <laughs> there's five shiny coins, that's a $1.25. Five quarters for those struggling. Um, five quarters. And here's this green folded $100 bill. And if I'm in it for my children, not for myself, if I'm in it for myself, I'm like, hey, look how shiny those coins are. You should take those. If I'm in it for my child, I'm like, trust me. I know what that gets you, and I know what this gets you. You'd rather take the green $100 bill. And I think Paul is looking at him and saying, those Judaizers, they're selling you on why you want five quarters. You don't want five quarters. That's not the value. That's not the Christian life don't choose the shiny. And the shiny always draws our eyes. But don't settle for it. They're trying to tell you you're not enough. And then you're like, yes, I am enough. I'm going to prove to you I'm enough. And let me work harder. That's what they're trying to do. I got to tell you, if you've ever loved another person, be it a child, a partner, spouse, coworker, and you watched somebody use them for their own selfish purposes, how did you feel about it? Pretty broken down pretty angry, and you want everything to help that person see it. You don't get it. They're using you. And like like, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think you're right. And I think that's the attitude Paul has with them. They're using you. The pain of watching somebody that you love get used for. What does it feel like? I think it feels like being a parent sometimes. Look at verse 19, because here's the third plea, and it's based on the future. But chapter 4, verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul feels as though he is the spiritual parent to this entire church. Matter of fact, he says, I feel like a mom in labor. Now, I've never been in labor, I hear it hurts. Um, I've been in a room twice where that happened. I got to tell you, the first, when our son was born, he's our oldest. When he was born, leading up to that conversation, Ellen said, okay, your job is to make me laugh when I go into labor. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And so we get into the hospital, and she, they tell us we're going to have a baby that night. I tell her a joke when a contraction hits. She tells me to stop. And I'm like, you told me to make you laugh. She's like, I was wrong. Don't do that again. And so I thought, all right, I'm done. So I called Tom Rogers, who was our pastor for so many years, because he'd said, hey, when she goes into labor, call me, I'll call the other guy. So they said, hey, you're having this baby tonight. I stepped back, I call Tom on my flip phone or whatever phone that was so many years ago. And so I call and said, hey, Tom, we're having this baby tonight. He goes, that's great. And I'm like, call all the pastors and tell them. Now, that was just me being shorthanded in my communication. I hung up the phone, and the nurse's like, we're going to be okay. I'm like, I know. She goes, no, we're really going to be okay. I'm like, I'm fine. She goes, you don't seem fine. I'm like, what seems wrong? She said, you just told him to call every pastor at your church? I'm like, no, my colleagues. I'm a pastor at the church. I'm like, okay, we're going to be fine. I'm like, good. Well, we go, I don't know, 20 minutes, and then we hear this. You know, we've got a parade of doctors and nurses walking through there already. I don't know why somebody's knocking. Come in and man in walks our pastoral staff and spouses. And Ellen had previously said, it's just me, you, and the medical community. And I'm like, that's good. And all of a sudden, here they all come. And she looks at me with that face she made when I made the joke to her, and she told me never to do that again. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. And, uh, and Tom was inquisitive. If you knew him, you know that. So he wants to know what everything is in the labor and delivery room. And so he walks over to this monitor right by Ellen, and there's a graph thing that's beeping up and down. And so all of a sudden it goes all the way to the top and it just flat lines across the top. And he says, What is this? And Ellen says, That monitor is my contractions. And all of a sudden, she's, he's like, What does it mean when it goes across the top? And she goes, It hurts. And so we went through that whole thing, and Tom's just loving it. And I'm like, I'm gonna pay for this. You know, that delivery room is full of chaos and pain, and life, and fear, and all of those things. And I'm grateful for the one that'll grab me and say, we're gonna be okay. And that's what God does for us, right, in life. And you know what is really a remarkable truth? He's looking at him and like, my little children, I'm in anguish of childbirth again. I've been here with you before. I'm gonna keep doing this because to watch Christ formed in you is too significant. I'm not walking away from this challenge. I'm in it. it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And if you've ever watched somebody that you love struggle, we have found a way to monitor the pain of a contraction, but we have never found the way to monitor the pain of loving somebody and watching them twist off into a wayward path. We've been there. And Paul says, I'm here again as Christ is formed in you. It's even a passive verb. I'm not forming Christ in you. You don't form Christ in you. Every time you think you do Sabbaths and festivals and all those things, you're acting as though you think you're in control of forming Christ in you. It's passive. As we worship, God forms Christ in us, and then it begins to come out. See, the quest of the Christian life isn't to get more Christianity in. It's to get that which happened when God gave us a new heart, to get that out through the members of our body. That's our calling. And all of a sudden, Paul is like, I am in childbirth for you all over again because it's that important to watch you grow spiritually. Ellen and I have a friend. She came into our life a long time ago right when we got married in our student ministry. And man, I got to tell you, we have watched her grow and we have celebrated every victory and we have struggled in all of her crises and tragedies where it felt like failure. I got to tell you, if you were to ask us and were to ask her, Yes, we know what it's like to labor again on behalf of a soul. If you've got children, you know what it's like. If you've ever had a spouse, you know what it's like, that you fight on behalf of another for their well-being because it matters. And that's where Paul is with them. He comes back and says, you know what? I wish I could be present with you now, and I wish I could change my tone. But there's some conversations just aren't pleasant conversations, and we're not going to shy away from them. I love you too much to shy away from this conversation. You're polluting the gospel. And it's going to have ramifications like a rock landing in the lake. And that ripple effect is going to affect you. It's going to affect those closest to you. It's going to affect your world. There's too much at stake. I'm not backing away from it. And sometimes conversations have to be face-to-face. We can't text conversations like this. People seem to have an inordinate amount of courage when they're texting, right? Yeah, these are face-to-face conversations. And don't expect the world to understand because the world won't understand. That's part of it. I remember talking with my kids about movies when they're like, well, I turned 13. I should go see a PG-13 movie. And me telling my kids, look, the world says you need to be 13 to see it. I'm sorry, I get it. The world doesn't care about you. The world doesn't give a rip about what you see or what you put in your mind. I do. I'm fully invested in you. And tonight, if you have a bad dream about that movie that you go see today, they're, they're not going to be the ones sitting up with you while you cry all night. That's going to be me or your mother. The world doesn't care. Do we intervene enough to care? Because the world might like, the Judea, okay, so you're adding stuff. That's okay. I mean, what does it hurt? All right, so you, you honor this Sabbath. What does it hurt? Who's in their life that loves them enough to lean in and say, That's not what God calls you to. If you can evoke worship through the practice of the Sabbath, then practice the Sabbath. But don't think you get a merit badge before God because you practice the Sabbath. And he owns it, and he offers it to them. Sorry, but there's times where people need our tone of voice. They need our body language. They need to see the look on our face. They need to see see that we care because our vocabulary, when you text, all you have are capital letters, which means you're screaming, or the people that like to put lots of exclamation points, right? Right? he loves them enough to sit down and have a real conversation. I think if we're real honest, Paul would say he's battling for their souls. He's battling for their souls. And I would ask you, what are you battling for today? What are you battling for? If I were to ask this room or people watching, make a list of 20 things that you're battling for today, I would bet you no two lists are the same. I think there'd be a lot of overlap, but I bet you no two lists are the same. And if you were the kind that would say, I don't even know what I need to battle for, so let me Google it so I can have a good answer. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get answers like battle for world peace, battle for honesty, battle for being able to change and remain teachable. Let me tell you what I think Paul would say. Because as I show you this list, I think all four of these things are listed in Paul's gospel for why he would write the Galatians. Four things worth battling for. One is the beautiful, simple truth of the gospel. If we miss that, we have no good news. And if any degree of lack of truth leads to a level of enslavement, then we have no right to offer a gospel that doesn't truly set free. That's why we have to battle for the simple, beautiful truth of the gospel. The second battle is this, our own soul and our spiritual growth. Nobody can do that for you. You have to take that battle on yourself. What do I need to do to grow spiritually? Because the third one is this, we now have to battle for the souls of those closest to us. Is that there may be somebody in your life you need to lean into and you may need to do it face to face so that they can hear your tone of voice, see your facial expression, your body language, and all of those things. Because you love them enough to speak into a world because the world's not going to do it because the world doesn't care about them. We've got to lean in and battle for those souls closest to us. So what Paul's doing to the Galatians, it's what Ellen and I do with each other, we do for our kids, it's what we do for that female that I mentioned a minute ago in our youth group, and it's what you do every day for the people that you love. Don't give up. Don't back away from that battle because the fourth one is this, is that we would learn how to redeem every opportunity to share the love of Christ with others. These are the people that may not be closest to us, but God's called them into our sphere of life so that we might redeem the moments to buy back every opportunity to point them to Christ. We don't ever walk away from those things. And if you look at that list, all four of those things are at play when Paul writes his letters to the church at Galatia. The purity of the gospel, his own spiritual growth, because he says, follow me. I've become like you are, and I care about you because you're close to me, and I want you to live this out because the ripple effects of you missing this will have generational consequences.
0: You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory from all of us at Grace Church. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.